Luke chapter 3, 1 to 20. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Sophias, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching and baptising a repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight and rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptised by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptised. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptise you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Okay, I'm going to lead us in prayer and then we'll uh, work through Luke chapter 3, 1 to 20. Let's pray. Now, Lord, we do thank you for this time we share together now. We thank you that we can read your word and think about it. And Lord, we pray that um, you'd help us to respond the right way to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've got your service outline there, that'll be helpful for you, as you can see where I come to an end. Saying and doing. Well, I'll mention the name Lance Armstrong and the topic of cheating and using drugs in sport isn't far behind. 
I suppose, Luke, we could talk about the Essendon Football Club too, but uh, for the purpose of this talk, we're going to stick with Lance Armstrong. American Lance Armstrong had been a seven-time winner of the Tour de France, that wonderful race. He was clearly a, a great athlete. Now, I wonder why. Well, throughout his career as a tour rider, he was regularly questioned about whether he'd uh, cheated and used drugs in sport. Well, he'd often denied uh, taking performance-enhancing drugs and regularly he'd made the point that he'd never failed a drug test. Well, that's fine. That's because some argued that he had such wealth that he could get his hands on great drugs that they hadn't yet made tests for and so he hadn't failed drug tests. But over time, the anti-doping agency uh, caught up with him and evidence mounted which revealed that he had actually taken performance-enhancing drugs, and that's something he also admitted to in an interview, I think, with Oprah Winfrey. Well, eventually he was stripped of all his achievements since 1998, including his seven Tour de France titles. He said one thing, but he did another. He said he hadn't taken drugs in sport, but in reality, he did do it. He did something else. This isn't actually a, a new problem, is it? It's, a, it's an old problem, the problem of saying one thing but doing something else. And today in the passage, we see that kind of thing happening. In effect, the people said that they were right with God because they were ethnic Jews, children of Abraham, but they didn't live like they were God's people. Like Lance, they said one thing, uh, but they did another. Well, just like the anti-doping agency eventually caught up with Lance Armstrong to take away his titles, uh, we see that today John the Baptist strips the people of their title as well. As far as John's concerned, they've lost their title as the people of God because they've said one thing, but they did another. And he let them know as a prophet of God, loud and clear, that they needed to make a fresh start. Now, when Luke writes to us about John, he begins there in verses 1 and 2 with a, a list of names of the world leaders at the time. You can see some of them, uh, Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, and the list goes on along with some high priests. And he gives us these names for a couple of reasons. In the first instance, they might be thought of as markers, so that we can get oriented, uh, see where we're standing in time and history as we read. And it also gives us the idea that we're not in some kind of fantasy, fantasy land either. Uh, this is no kind of Lord of the Rings story that we're looking at, it's history. Well, with the announcement of the world leaders of the day, Luke's also casting something of a new beginning in this Gospel. Because... In the Gospel, the last time we heard about John the Baptist, he was just being conceived and, and he was a baby. But now, since that announcement, time has passed. The announcement that John was going to be a prophet and great in the sight of the Lord, uh, preparing a people ready for God, has starting to come true. And so at this point in the story, we see that John has now grown into a man, a hairy man living in the woods, in the wilderness, wearing camel skin. He's down by the Jordan River. It's around the year, around 28 AD. And it's been some 400 years and, 
since uh, God has spoken through uh, the prophet Malachi, which is the book just before Matthew. And we read in verse 2 the significant words, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And so what we see is this announcement of the leaders of the day and the note that the word of God comes to John, it's Luke's way of showing that he's a genuine prophet. It reminds us of the prophets of the Old Testament. This is what's written in Jeremiah 1 verse 2. The word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Amon, king of Judah. And so Luke's putting John's ministry as a prophet on the same level as the authority of the prophets of old. And already Zechariah, his father, has commented, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. So what else is the significance of this? Well, at this point in the story, as readers, we're supposed to be encouraged because we can start to see that the plans that were announced earlier about John's life are starting to take shape. We're supposed to be assured that things are working out, that God's plans and his willingness to save his people are actually coming true. At this point in the story, we're supposed to be calmed down. We can see that God's in control and that he's going to be bringing about the salvation. It's God's story. He's the main actor in it and we can see that things are coming together. John's now grown up and it's true, he has become a prophet. And so we're encouraged to see that these plans that have been announced are starting to find their fulfilment. But the other thing that this list of names does as well is it sets the tone for this story regarding the harsh and the hostile world that John enters into and that Jesus also comes into. Those familiar with the names Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod Tetrarch and the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas would be jogged in their minds about some people who were powerful and caused a great deal of distress at times to the common people. Tiberius Caesar took over from Caesar Augustus and he was famous for his many trials of treason and also deporting the Jews from Rome. Apparently his mental health declined severely during the end of his reign as, as emperor uh, and it was described as an ending that went out very badly. It was described as pure terror. It doesn't sound good, does it? Pilate was the prefect of the Roman province of Judea and this is how he was described as inflexible, a blend of self-will and relentlessness. His rule was marked by briberies, insults, robberies, outrages, frequent executions without trial and endless savage ferocity. Apparently he introduced aspects of emperor worship to the Jews, who, which they would have counted as idolatry, and he even took money from the temple treasury. Later, as we know, under the Roman rule of Pilate, Jesus was also executed. Herod Antipas, he was described as tetrarch, which means he was the ruler over a fourth of a region, a quarter of a region. Uh, he wasn't a great guy either, but we're going to come back to him a little later. But the mention of these high priests is worth note as well. Annas and Caiaphas, they were part of the family. Um, Annas had a number of children who also became high priest and he, he had a son-in-law, Caiaphas, who became high priest. Uh, that title spoke of their power over the temple 
and the Jewish religious practice. Those men would have had unrivaled power and privilege amongst the Jewish people. And so these names, as they're mentioned at the start of chapter 3, people are thinking, wow, this, is, this isn't a great bunch. These names start to come up throughout the Gospel. And it adds, it's not just uh, given to us to give a, a bit of ancient Near Eastern background, just to sort of fill us in on a bit of ancient history to keep the, keep the punters interested. He doesn't just put it in for that reason. It actually adds to the growing sense of tension in the story. Well, let's now look at John's contribution to the history of salvation. And if you're reading in the text there, we're up to verse 3. I'm going to read through 3 to 6. He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. Well, John, as we know, baptises. At times in the Old Testament, in the Psalms and in Zechariah, there's been a link with physical cleansing, a washing, and also a metaphorical washing the washing away of sin. And John's baptism can be seen in that kind of light. This is the outward sign of being cleansed by God or having one's sins washed away. That's what the symbol of his baptism is about. But Luke doesn't devote a great deal of time to describing the baptism compared to the time he spends talking about the actual message that went with the baptism. The important thing is the baptism was tied to repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's the significant thing. And the quote from Isaiah chapter 40 is important for two reasons. Firstly, we see that God has had a plan for salvation that's begun quite some time ago and is being fulfilled. John's identified as one who's in the wilderness getting the people ready for the Lord. And the Lord who visits turns out to be none other than Jesus. And this passage concludes, and all people will see God's salvation. And so we see this quote from Isaiah reveals the fulfilment of God's plans in the past. God's bringing about his plans and purposes. And the quote also speaks about people getting ready for the Lord. Uh, this language about fixing up the roads, knocking off the tops of hills and filling in the valleys before the Lord's arrival, is a way of saying people need to get ready for the special one that's coming. If a king's coming to town, they, they're saying, let's get the roads sorted out. I mean, if you think about it, if Queen Elizabeth was coming to Port Macquarie, what do you think the council would do? Leave the, leave the potholes as they are or, or take their little truck around and squirt the tar in and a bit of crusher dust? and They'd, they'd at least do that, wouldn't they? Fill in the potholes and get the place ready for Queen Elizabeth? Well, getting ready for the Lord, according to John, didn't involve fixing the roads. He's saying it did involve getting baptised and turning backs on sin. That was the way to get ready for the Lord. So John, in effect, says, turn your back on sin. Stop relying on yourself for salvation. Show the reality of your changed heart by a changed way of life. 
Now, John's contribution to salvation history was important and he fulfills his role in getting the people ready for the Lord. Now, his message about forgiveness of sins is also in accordance with the message Jesus gives. Jesus tells people to repent and to believe the good news. And that challenge is still relevant today, isn't it? Think about your life as I think about mine. Is there sin that you need to repent of? What are the kinds of ways of life that are shameful that we need to turn our backs on? And the next question is, are we ready to meet the Lord as well? Well, the people, the faithful people, went out to meet John. But John's assessment of the spiritual situation was rather bleak. I'll pick it up in verse 7 if you're reading along. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptised by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, oh, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John's point is simple. If you think all's well with you and God, this is what he's saying to the people, then you're wrong. Just because you've been born a Jew, just because you're an ethnic Israelite, doesn't make you right with God. In fact, if you want to avoid God's condemnation when he comes to judge the world, then you better have a fresh start. Wash your sins away and show by a changed life that you've had a changed heart. Well, what is at the heart of this message? Well, John introduces us to a bit of agriculture, the, uh, the tree and the fruit metaphor, to point out, as uh, we'd say in Australian idiom, we need to be fair income with God. That's what he's saying. We can't just say one thing and do another. His message is that there needs to be evidence, fruit, in our lives that we've turned our back on sin and that we stand with God and that we rely on God and his mercy to save us from the consequences of our sin and rebellion. As we read this story, we are confronted with the life of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away sin, the one who brings forgiveness and salvation. And the right response that we ought to make is to face up to our need to repent as well. That's the challenge from God's word this morning. We need to face up to our need to repent as well. Now, I must say at this point in the sermon, this is not exactly a comfortable topic to speak about. It can be a bit uncomfortable to analyse and think about areas of our lives that we need to sharpen up in, areas that we need to change, areas that we're ungodly, immature and rebellious. It's a lot easier to blame others for our mistakes. It comes more naturally to not take personal responsibility for our lives and instead uh, shoulder the responsibility somewhere else for our blunders. But that's not what God calls us to do. He calls us to look at our own hearts. 
And the irony is he knows our failures anyway. And he calls us to repent from that sin and to enjoy his mercy and his willingness to forgive. That's the good news. We have a God who cares. Now, as you and I weigh up our sin and the the call that we have to repent, let's look just for a time at the people of that time in John's day and their responses to his message. I'll pick it up in verse 10. We'll start with the crowds. And what should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts, I think, did your passage say tunics? Yes, well, I haven't worn a tunic myself, but um, this one says shirts, so I've got a little bit of a different NIV here. Anyone who has two shirts or tunics should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Well, in John's society, uh, there wasn't the same kind of system of government welfare that we enjoy in our society. Uh, There's conversation in our society about ending the age of entitlement, Well, I don't think they even began with the age of entitlement in his day. And yet the Bible teaches us that God cares for the poor, that they shouldn't be looked down upon, instead that the the poor should be cared for. And here John is very practical in his message. If somebody lacks uh, clothing or food and somebody's got enough to share, then they should share. That's his response. That's how they're going to show their repentant heart in action by being kind to the poor. Let's look now at verse 12 at the tax collectors. Even tax collectors came to be baptised. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Now apparently the taxation was diverse. The Jewish authorities could collect some temple tax and also land tax. But the Roman rulers also uh, got the free market at work where they could um, get people to put in a tender for how much tax they thought they could collect. And whoever said they could collect the most tax, then they won the contract to collect the tolls and duties and customs taxes. Well, once they came up with the goods for the Romans, their their tax level, uh, what they collected on top of that was what they got to keep. That, after they t- took their expenses out, that would be their net profit. Uh, and so John just tells these people to stop collecting tax, doesn't he? He just shuts the tax industry down. No, I'm tricking you there. He doesn't do that. Uh, he doesn't just shut down the tax collecting industry and throw it to the pack, as they say. He calls on the tax collectors not to join the ranks of the unemployed and sit around wondering where their next meal's coming from. Instead, he says that they need to express their change of heart, their repentance of sin, by doing their job fairly in a way that's not going to exploit people, doing it uh, according to, I guess, what the terms for the authorities uh, have established would be. Be fair, don't exploit. That was how they would show their their change of heart. Well, let's turn now to the soldiers in verse 14. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. 
Well, if the soldiers were complaining that their wages were low because either the, the Romans didn't pay them enough or if they were Herod soldiers, they, they weren't getting enough, John calls them to be content with what they've got. That would reflect a repentant heart, to be re- content. And God would see a changed life as they stopped using their sword to extort money out of people. That would be an example of the fruit of repentance for them. Well, I wonder what John would say to our generation about this kind of thing. Well, it's worth noting that the areas that John identifies about repentance involve society and caring for people. Now, Christianity has actually uh, enjoyed a pretty good tradition of uh, caring for people with respect to establishing orphanages, hospitals, schools, and even the abolition of the slave trade. But we've got to continue to feel the weight of our responsibility under God to care for people. And what we see from the Word of God today is that God does care for people. He cares for all kinds of people, including the poor. He extends what we might call common grace, even to to folk who don't necessarily share Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. And also that if we've got repentant hearts that have turned away from sin, that we can show uh, the fruit of that by the way that we care for people. And so the principles, if I could summarise them from this passage, are share with those in need, do our jobs justly and don't cheat people, and don't lord it over people when we've got power to do so. These are the challenges. Well, John's forceful in his approach as a prophet of God, In fact, some people start to wonder whether he is the Messiah himself. But John instead points us to Jesus. And if you're looking in the outline now, we're up to point five. John points to Jesus and we'll read from verse 15 through to 18. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptise you with water, but the one who is more powerful than I, will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. John comes as one in the wilderness, getting people ready for the Lord. And he explains that compared to the one coming next, he's a nobody. It's true that John baptises with water, but he reminds us that Jesus, the greater one, is going to baptise people with the Holy Spirit. And the reference to fire probably alludes to Jesus' role also as judge. Because there is a judgment on view, there is a separation of the people, that takes place, there is the wheat on the one hand and then the chaff on the other and it doesn't end well for the chaff. And so the take-home message from this part of the Bible is to make sure that we're on God's team, that we're allied to Jesus, that we're counted not among the chaff but that we are counted amongst the wheat that's taken into the barn. And so John points us to Jesus for life with God. John's been very effective in his prophetic role and his words have an impact. It's one thing, isn't it, to 
think things, but it's another thing, isn't it, to speak your mind. Well, John, as a prophet of God, doesn't seem to have the luxury of just not wanting to uh, button his lips and, and say a little less. He feels compelled to speak the very words of God. And as he does so, it gets him into trouble. In verse 19, he speaks out against Herod, who, against the law, marries his brother's wife. His brother Philip has a wife and Herod Antipas marries her. And we see that Herod is clearly opposed to God. In verse 19, we note that he does other evil things as well. And to that list of evil things, he adds another one, which is to take John and throw him into prison. And so here we see, at the start of this Gospel of Luke, the theme of opposition of, to God and to his people's surfaces. Opposition to John and later opposition to Jesus. Well, in conclusion, it's worth thinking about the testing of our faith. Today we've seen John the Baptist as prophet of God, who prophesied in the context of a hostile and a very brutal world. He pre preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and he called the people to a fresh start with their sins washed away. He challenged them to show by a changed life that they really did have a changed heart, a heart that was changed by God. He didn't claim to be the saviour, but he instead pointed us and them to Jesus for salvation. Ultimately, Jesus is the one who suffers and rises to bring about God's plans for the salvation of our sin. And we can experience God's grace and forgiveness through his work. Now, I mentioned at the start of this sermon that it's an old problem to say one thing and to do another. And Lance Armstrong's not the only guy to make that kind of blunder. As those who profess to be followers of Jesus, those who call themselves Christians, we also have a responsibility, don't we? Not just to say that we believe in Jesus, but to show that we believe in Jesus. And so some of the things that we can wrestle with, uh, which might reflect that we have had a changed heart, would be sharing with those in need. Uh, doing our jobs properly and justly and not cheating people. And also, if we've got any power, not to lord that power over people. The challenge for us is to be those who show that our hearts have been changed by God by living different lives. That would be evidence of it. Now, may the God who's given us forgiveness in Christ also help us to live lives which actually bring honour to him. And let's do that in response to God's kindness and goodness towards us. Let us pray. Our Lord God, as we think today about um, our lives and the areas that we need to change and turn away from sin, we pray that you would give us the resolve uh, to look at those things and to forsake that sin. And Lord, we do pray that you'd continue to change our hearts and that we'd show from the lives that we live that, that that has happened. Lord, we do thank you for your kindness that you have provided Jesus as the 
the Saviour, who laid down his life and bore our sin and rose again and brings us forgiveness. We thank you for your kindness and mercy that we can see has taken place in history for our sake. Lord, we do thank you for the comfort that comes from that, the assurance that we can be right with you through what he's done. And Lord, we do pray that you'd strengthen us in our resolve to serve you and bring honour to you by the way that we live. We pray for your help in that, that whole process. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.